You are listening to Read It, Roll It, Hole It. He's two putts from victory. Only needs one. Welcome, golfers, to the Read It, Roll It, Hole It podcast. Um, super excited today. I've got my good friend and, uh, yeah, fellow fellow coach and Stuart Leon. How are you, Stewie? I'm great, Ollie. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you for getting up in the middle of the night to talk to me. Uh, it's, it's actually early morning and I'm usually up at this time. That's all right. All then. of us that work in the golf industry early mornings is something we're, we're quite familiar with. And actually, I enjoy Brilliant. Oh, that's all right. Thank you. So, yeah. So, so for the listeners who don't know Stewie, he is, um, he coaches at Metropolitan Golf Club in uh, Melbourne. Melbourne. Um, he's been Aussie Pro of the Year, Victorian Pro of the Year a couple of times, um, and sort of one of the sort of leading coaches that I've ever met, anyway, for sure. So, um, yeah, a bit of a legend, and we're very lucky to have you on today. No, it's uh, you're very kind, and it's interesting. Those awards really aren't why we do it it's it's nice to be recognized but i get my kicks out of being out there with people and helping them with the golf games and i'm not sure how much my students pick up on it but i, I learn far more from them than, than what they learn from me every day it's just yeah, it's great fun brilliant great stuff Stu. um t- tell us then Stu. tell us a little bit about your career like i want to yeah so you obviously were a good player talk us talk us through that sort of uh, stage of your life so my, my goal was always to be a touring player. I think most coaches would, would say something similar. We get into golf as a, as a junior and you have this childhood dream. And I was okay. I won a couple of state championships here in, in Victoria and Melbourne. And at the time, the golf scene was, was strong. Like I'm, I'm part of the Greg Norman era where the next generation was influenced by this this man. And you could put in, I guess, Stuart Appleby. This is just golfers from, from my hometown. Stuart Appleby, Robert Allenby, Jeff Ogilvy, Aaron Badley. So Jeff is maybe, I think we're the same age or within a year, and Aaron's a couple of years below me. So we, we grew up playing junior golf together. But there was a lot of us, like the, looking at the scoring averages of the time, just because of the depth of, of fields, it's a bit it's stronger, I think, than it was currently. Like the cream is good, but there was just more, more around. It'd be interesting because a lot of my age group now have children. So whether we get this spike again in people that are already quite good at golf. You know, we're talking about the guys that are on tour or the people like me who are coaching. Our kids are sort of, I guess, between 15 and five years old. So whether a few of those see another spike in, in golfers from Australia. So I, I went and played amateur golf and uh, I went to night school to finish off my education. And at that time I was playing all of the, the national selection events that we had around the country it's not quite like what the guys are doing now where a lot of the australians well pre-covid anyhow we would go to the uk and i'm now going as a coach sometimes but the amateurs now go to the uk in june and then we have an american swing for the the summer of golf over there and then we have our, our national swing my first overseas trip was to the asian tour school so i look at the the foundation that that our players are now getting in relation to how to travel and how to play. So I, my parents were very practical. It's like, well, if you need, if you want to become a golf pro, we'd like you to get a qualification of, of some description. Uh, and equally, if if you're going to to do this, you need to support yourself as well. We're happy to to help, but you know, you need to you need to work. You need to have some efficiency within your time when you're practicing. Because to be fair, I was doing it full time for a few months and there wasn't much of a plan, to be honest. I was just kind of playing golf with my mates and I'd go and practice and hit balls and it wasn't structured. I wasn't really working on my craft. I was just getting angry at myself. I didn't hit it perfectly and then go and work on my swing and, and tinker, which I think is fairly common. So I started working at a golf club called Kingston Links. 
and it was a local public course which had just opened. It was the first in Melbourne of the sort of the premium public courses. I was still travelling around playing amateur golf and was I just thought, well, I, I need to get a job. I need to do a qualification. So I did my, my PGA traineeship and I was asking around where, where the best, best place would be and it turned out that where I currently work, Metropolitan was the best place because it's a, a fantastic golf course first and foremost. The membership, it's, it's a really great membership of high-level business people, smart smart people, doctors, lawyers, but really strong golf culture. And Ross Anderson was my boss and he was a young professional and he was one of the most savvy business people around. So I'd, we started our traineeships you know, in a calendar year, but in, in January of the year prior, I'd, I'd had my job lined up to go to Metropolitan and I went through, finished that in my final year. I think I averaged under par for, for my playing. Uh, I was ranked number one in the, the country for combined playing and academic. And I think by playing, I was, I don't know, maybe top 10 or seventh or something like that. I would support myself after my traineeship because I was, <laughs> excuse me, playing programs and trying to make my way as a tour player, but I'd always coach or in the sponsorship packages that I put forward, there was always a coaching element to, to put me in front of people. And I found that that was my best asset because even if my performance wasn't great, if people had a relationship with me and I helped them, they, they, those groups are always much more likely to renew the sponsorship at the next year. So I, I got an Australian tour card. Uh, I got a partial card in Europe on my second attempt. I played... Uh, a little bit in Asia. I played maybe four, three years in Australia. I also got a, a couple of starts on the Challenge Tour and I played a thing called the Alps Tour, which is, I guess, a third tier thing over in Europe. and got to play in Italy and Switzerland and Austria and had a great time. Um, <laughs> I, I achieved a ranking, uh, maybe top 800 in the world professionally, 740 or 760. And maybe if I had one of my better weeks, in a week that added, maybe I get inside the top 500 and get a few more opportunities. But as it, as it stood, my best results were in, in the weeks that had low prize money and low points. Uh, was I good enough? People said I could have been, but mentally, I don't think I was ever, I was never organized, not in the sense of my to-do lists and completion, but I was always too hard on myself. I was always, I always struggled to leave golf at the golf course, Ollie. I'd be festering on it. And what I know now, having done some of the shots to hole stuff also is the areas that I was personally concerned about. You know, like my self-worth was attached to how I hit the ball and my whole coaching and my whole game was around hitting targets, hitting fairways and greens, but I neglected in my practice and I worked hard I neglected in my practice, a couple of really key areas that really would have sh potentially shifted the needle in my scoring, the areas that I was working on and that I prided myself on ball striking from 120 to 160 hitting fairways, hitting greens. I couldn't get good enough at that. I was already good. And if I improved that by a bit more, it really wasn't going to shift the needle in my score, but what it, did do when it wasn't as good as it needed to be is I got angry and frustrated by it. So, and then I'd go and practice in anger and despite myself further perpetuating it. So I haven't, I haven't probably gone into some of the results I had, but like I, at the end of it, I really didn't enjoy the person that I was when I was playing. I didn't like the headspace I was in. I didn't like the selfishness of it, but if I had my time again, would I do it? Absolutely. Would I, would I go back with lessons learned? Yeah, absolutely. Would it make a difference? I don't know, but it'd be fun finding out, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would. It's, um, we've, we've played a few times over in Melbourne, Stewie, and uh, mate, yeah. you hit the, ball, hit the ball like, yeah, amazing. Oh, you hold gamers class. Like, you know, it's probably one of the best players I've played with. Like, just stripe it, stripe it. So, no, it's good. You mentioned, um, couple of things there one one thing is fascinating which we'll, we'll come back to perhaps the dispersion that golfers hit 
like 120 to 160 example and mm. um, perhaps players' expectations of different scores. But you mentioned like the, the, the areas that weren't quite sharp enough. Can you expand on what areas that was? Yeah, absolutely. So let's use the short game as an example. I worked a lot on my, my wedge systems, partial wedges, distance control, different trajectories. I was good at it. <coughs> Excuse me. But I did the majority of my practice on the shots that were over 50 metres to 100, 120, whatever my wedge was going. And I did lots and lots of work in that area. What I now know is, is two things. Firstly, for me inside 100 metres or 110 yards, you're in yards, aren't you, over there? Yeah, yeah. We, um, we, can, we can work it out if you want to stay in your foreign language. Uh, I'm, I'm bilingual in terms of yardages. <laughs> 75% of the shots that I was playing were inside 40 yards. But in my practice, it just wasn't – I didn't reflect – the balance of the shots, I was doing 75% of my practice outside of 50 yards. I thought it was far more important to, to have my really, my wedge distances dial. You know, what's my go-to distance? Is it 80? Is it 60? And reality is from that sort of distance from 80 meters, 80 yards, the average dispersion on tour is only just a little under 18 feet. 80 <clears throat> yeah, from, from the fairway, from 75 to 100 yards, yeah. PGA Tour, the average proximity to hole is around 17.6, 17.8 feet, depending on the year. And wow. the, make rate, the make rate from there is, if you're a good player, it's maybe 10%. If I think, I think that would surprise a lot of the listeners there, Stewie. Sorry, cutting up. But I think the perception of, of golfers is what when they watch golf, when we watch it is that they the pros are mustard and they stiff it inside 100 yards they just hit it by the flag and i think i see a lot of like junior golfers or good players you know like even pros and they'll have 100 yards and hit it to eight foot and they're they're, they're pissed off and actually that's like a world-class shot right absolutely it is and for sure you can hit those close but very often they don't go close if we use some of the shots to hold data and go to the next category out, 100 to 120, and this is across all ball lives, we see just as many balls inside 15 feet as we see outside of 40 feet. It's almost like an equal ratio of shots that get into a one puttable area that go to a high risk of three putt, and then a whole lot go to two putt land, which would be that 15 to 25, 40 feet. So with pros, that's with professionals. Yeah, yeah, we're talking high-level pros. High-level, yeah. <clears throat> now, obviously, that, that's across all ball lies. That includes rough, and there's an element of, you know, I'm, it's going to be very hard from the rough from this pin to get it close, but there's other times where the rough to this pin works really, really well. It takes the spin off. I can get it up to that top shelf nicely. So going back to your initial question, so I never really invested as heavily as I needed to in the stuff inside of 40 I, I worked on my putting, but I didn't like putting practice. I, was, I, I, I love putting now. I can do it for hours. It's creative. It's fun. But at the time, my, my putting was regulated by my form and my technique. I, my reads were bad. And I'm sure we'll talk about Aimpoint as we go through this discussion. But what, what Aimpoint gave me was, firstly, clarity right decision or wrong decision, it was a definite decision. I'm hitting to this point. And at the time I would have considered myself to be a very linear aimer. Linear meaning I pick a point to the edge of the hole, every putt's a straight putt, and then the slope moves it to the hole. Whereas now I, I can still aim in that sense, but I'm really great at seeing and riding the curve into the ball, into the hole, or I can see it just off the face. So whatever becomes most vivid I just go with it and it's immensely fun. And, and every time I hit a putt, there's a routine involved, a decision-making, a feeling of the slope. And because of that, the rehearsal was better. Yeah, you know, I, I never practiced my decision-making, not just in putting, but 
in in my ball striking and actually for me the skill in golf is the adaptation and problem solving but if i don't practice it in in my controlled environment where i'm safe how do i expect to make good decisions and be in the headspace where i can perform when i'm playing because I'm so far consumed with what, what way up distance do I want? I can look, I can do this 80 yard shot six different ways, but on average, it's going to like get to 15 feet if I'm exceptionally good on average. But if I got the ball closer to the green, you know, from 20 to 40 yards away from the hole, I'm going to average under 10 feet if I'm okay. You know, not world class, but you know, a scratch level golfer. And now all of a sudden, the make rate goes up exponentially. Then I get it a bit closer again, like say five to nine feet. Now I'm looking at a much better than 50% chance of getting it up and down. So because my strategies around hit greens, hit the fairway, play to your favorite wedge distance because it's what we feel comfortable at, a full shot. How often do you hit a great longer wedge shot? You nail it, it's right online. It comes up 20 feet short or 20 feet long and you're satisfied. But you get that uncomfortable 40-yard shot and you kind of just, just open the face a little bit and it just slides a bit to the right because you've held on. And it goes to eight feet and you're like, oh, that felt awful. But you, your likelihood of holding that next one is so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, I was decent at speed control, putting 25 to 40 feet. So I married up lots of greens in reg and I was pretty good at speed control, but I wasn't exceptional at holding putts, you know, the birdie putts, not, not the tap-ins, but that, that 10 to 15 foot range. And, and because I wasn't quite sharp with my short game, it was good. Like I, was, I hit it well. I have a good short game, but we're talking about what you need to be to be right at that top level. So I, I would find myself ironically with people that in quotation marks couldn't hit it. You know, and they'd scrounge it around. They'd get up and down. They hit on the green. They make the putt and I'd go like, 15 feet, 18 feet, 12 feet, 25 feet, 8 feet, miss, 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 miss. Hit on the edge of the green, hit, chip it to 6 feet, miss it. It just gets so frustrated. This sounds like and, our game of golf. <laughs> <laughs> possibly. It sounds like every game I play. I was. And, uh, I remember being all over the place and you were like, boom, 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 but we had a good game. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's funny how golfers self-impose. I'm not just golfers, I think people in general, these sources of frustration become distractions. Like, should it matter to me what my playing partners are doing? No. And I'm sure in actual fact, there was lots of people I played with that hit the ball better than I did. But the thing that I focused on was when the guy couldn't hit, it's like, oh, look, I always play with guys that hold everything. You know, woe is me. It's like, dude, you weren't practicing the right stuff. You, if I invested if i recorded where i invested my time the things i got good at the best at were where a they were the things i enjoyed the most and the things i got the best at and part of being a professional athlete is not everything is comfortable and in fact performing under pressure whether you're a cricketer or a soccer player in business delivering on that key meeting or that key moment Afterwards, there's a sense of perhaps enjoyment, definitely relief, but leading into it, it's not a comfortable space. And my preparation didn't reflect what was to come. I didn't assess the demands of the task and I shied away from things that made me feel a bit uncomfortable because it dented my confidence. Yeah, I want to hit this same shot off a perfect lie every time and it gives you this false sense of improvement. But in reality, if you understand what you're dealing for, dealing with what we're preparing for it is being uncomfortable it is a large number of bad shots if you hit the ball in the fairway expect it to be in a divot if it's in the rough expect it to be bad if you're in the bunker expect it to be plugged that's a harsh view but if you're preparing a little bit for that and and if you look at tiger who's my era he was watching him dominate you're a little bit younger than me but seeing tiger in the early 2000s and his performance was amazing, but it wasn't fairway green, make the putt. It was grit and determination and, and the sum of all those parts. 
And yes, you can win playing beautiful golf or beautiful football, but you can win playing ugly too. For sure, hundred percent. It's interesting. The uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The um, you hit a lot of wedges from eighty yards, etc. But what you need to understand is hitting an eighty-yard shot off Melbourne turf. I think is the best feeling. <laughs> oh. The best struck golf shot. It's like so tight, and it's just like hitting off a, I don't know, just off concrete. It's just beautiful. And then you've played Melbourne, and you know some of the links courses with the that vintage of green and shape, and the way the ball reacts, and you know, skipping it into a back pin or flooding it up to hit it over a bunker, or using a slope to go around something. Yeah, it's immensely it's fun. fun. It's always like a, always. It's normally a big firm bounce in it, but then it yeah. spins like crazy because it's you so clean it off. Hit, yeah, hit it properly. It's um, so it's like yeah, awesome. One and thing in you Melbourne, um, sorry, sorry I'll just go. There's just such amazing green structures to play at too. The the, the demands of the shot. You've just got to be so creative. Definitely, hundred percent. I was gonna like you almost needed that creative practice to be in your putting. I wonder why that wasn't there in your putting because the greens are, as you say, funky. You can do some right. I wonder why that wasn't there. Yeah. I, I reflect on the coaching that I had and it was great coaching. You know, the, the first coach I had, so I got to, uh, what was I? I got to a handicap of four when I was maybe 14 I dropped my first handicap was 27 when I was, and that's the highest handicap we could get. So I was 27 at, you know, I think I joined a private club and got a handicap maybe when I was in my first year of, of high school. So you know, year seven, so I guess I'm 12, 13. In 18 months, I got down to four. I just played and played and played. Then I had golf lessons and I was a tall, skinny kid. Like I'm six foot four. And at the time I wouldn't have been over 70 kilograms. I was just all over the shop. Wasn't strong enough. Funky swing, you know, self-taught. And this this coach would with the old the old technology, like a, a proper big video camera with a full VHS cassette included. <laughs> and you know, the lesson fee, the first lesson was more expensive because you had to buy the video cassette off him. <laughs> And you'd have your half hour, hour lesson. But the whole video, the whole lesson was videoed, like everything. The whole wow. discussion. I look at what we do on our phones now, and it's probably a bit more condensed. But this video was running for everything. But the only thing he didn't record, because we needed the cassette to go into the video player to do the, the technical analysis, was actually the discussion about the swing. But everything else was there. And you'd come in some days and there'd be like a, a skewer sitting up between the camera and they did this automatic line and just tweak it around and line it up. It was, but I had very few putting lessons. Like barely had a putting lesson. It's criminal. And I'm reflecting now on what I'm coaching and I proportionate to the importance of putting, the number of putting lessons I give, and I give a lot of putting lessons, but it's still not even close. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? And it then I, gravi I gravitated towards, you know, my whole thing for my ball striking was hit fairways and hit greens, which came down to the form. What is your technique? So I applied the same thinking, unguided, meaning self-exploring to, to the stroke. And in my practice would be string lines, punning mirrors, you know, putt through tees. And it got me so far removed from the art of putting. Mm. Yeah, and I'm doing it off a flawed read. Uh, what I've since found out is I'm pretty good at hitting the ball where I want to. I'm pretty good at hitting at the speed I want to. But it wasn't going in. So I'd start playing around with things that were, weren't broken. I didn't solve the right problem. And for me, that unlocking that was the green read. I, I, putt, I putt well now. Like if I putted, I putt so well now compared to them. And it's free and it's fun. And I, I can putt all day now. I just love it. But I hated it at the time. It's interesting. I love putting too, as you know. We we talk yeah. uh, 
many the hours talking talk putting rubbish all day long. It's um <clears throat> it's interesting how like yeah, it just got you very linear by doing the you know the, the getting on the mirror, probably eyes over the ball, string line straight back, straight through. All, all of that. Yeah, and was I linear by nature or was I linear by training? I, looking at what I now know, I can do linear. I trained it, but often it's not the thing that I'm vibing and feeling the most. Your personality is not linear. I would say. <laughs> Parts of it are. Parts of it are. But yeah, you're, you're pretty, pretty uh, well, not up and down, but you know what I mean? Quite, yeah, just just fun so i'm saying linear people aren't fun but there we are um <laughs> don't want to go linear. down yeah, you're not fun yeah you're the boring one um but you look at the engineers the precision based people every putt's a straight putt yeah the other thing that got me out of linear is i actually started testing so i guess i am linear in that sense i like exploring and validating but i I would put down the line on my ball and then I'd get a string line and I would extend the string line on top of where my ball was pointed. I worked out I couldn't aim the ball very well. <laughs> kind of goes against, if you're using the hole, like usually if you're linear, so you go all in, isn't it? You put the line on the ball where you want it to go. You're looking at that point. I couldn't line the ball up. It's a, it's a difficult task, I, I think, yeah. lining the ball up. You need to train it. If it, if it helps you. But if I'm relying on it, because I never, and this is all after the fact, it's like, I'm going to line it up. I never tested my ability to line it up. It never occurred to me that I could be putting it in the wrong spot because I looked at it and it looked right. But when I actually tested it, and it wasn't that there was a bias, it was just randomly wrong. Do you think that was because you weren't really being specific in picking an aim point, point to aim up? You weren't picking a start line. In this case, no, because I, I'd put a T in the ground and say, okay, that's my point. Right or wrong. It was like this, it was purely an exercise of can I aim it? And it would have been fine if I aimed it incorrectly, but it was always a bias left or bias right. I think my stroke would have just factored that in, but it was completely random. <laughs> and I even went so far to test. You know, a bit like if, I, if you're plumb bobbing, you kind of you can fudge it because if you know there's a big breaking part you stand in a slightly different spot and you get the look you need instinctively you just work it out it's like am i, am I doing this because there's more slope or less slope it was just i just couldn't do it did you used to use plumb bob no i've explored no. it um, i would say have i done it yes but when i was on tour was it something that i would use no but when i was a junior I'd, well, it actually helped yeah, it would help me pick which way the ball would go because sometimes I wouldn't know, but how can it actually help if you're standing behind the ball and not actually getting part of where the ball is rolling or in, in, the, in the motion part? Explain but, to the listeners in Stewie Leong's eyes, what is plumb bobbing? Plumb bobbing is where you stand behind the ball and you close one eye and you dangle the putter. And if the shaft moves because of the slope one way or the other, it, it indicates which way the ball is going to break and potentially how much slope is there. Unfortunately, what you're sampling is the bit of ground that you're standing on. And because you're doing it behind the ball, it's true for what you're standing on, but the ball may or may not be, in most cases not, but sometimes it'd be a correlation to be the same as what the ball happens to be rolling on. But by you standing in a particular way, the shaft will move because in theory, the shaft is always going to return back to straight, assuming that you know how to hang the toe so the putter does hang straight because sometimes it'll hang with a bias because of the weight of the putter head. But because your perception is tilted, your body is tilted, the shaft and you line it up through the ball and the hole, it will go one way or the other. And it shows you potentially which way the ball is going to break. But as we talked about, that only is true if by chance what you're standing on is representative of the putt itself, which does happen, but it's not, it's not overly accurate, is it? No, I think, yeah, it's not where the ball's going to go. Like, I, so it's the same as aim point, is it, plumb bobbing? Oh, please, Ollie. Please, Ollie. <laughs> 
let's let's talk about it come on <laughs> let's talk because i people say that to me right people do say oh well pain points a bit like plum bobbing so if somebody said to you stewie aim point and plum bobbing the same thing what would you say can i swear no I <laughs> yeah could. Um, so it really depends in the context of of that comment the, the nice answer is yeah, there is some similarity. What we're going to use is a system to help you feel slope and to help you make a better decision. But one is flawed for these reasons. We just talked about, you know, yes, it can help you see slope, but there's no, there's no real calibration of it. One, one's a black art, but where there's a similarity is both are attempting to solve a problem. How much curve is here? Where Aimpoint differs is just the sheer amount of science that's behind it. And you've come in at the express level, but you know, I came in a few years before you with, with Mark and with Jamie, who we, we both know and, and think a lot of, using the charts and, and doing the maths and learnt more about the green structures and, and how that applies. So... Aimpoint, firstly, one of the big attractions to me is that it's it's science-based, whereas the mythology and the black art of plumb bobbing is something that's kind of, you know, I did it because I played with someone as a junior and he, and he showed me, okay, this, this helps. He's like, oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that before. And I would try it out, but I couldn't get it to work all the time. I now know why I couldn't get it to work all the time, but sometimes it worked wonderfully. And the, the guys on tour that are really good at plumb bobbing, they don't execute their read the same every time. They instinctively know that when there's more break, they, they go a little bit to the low side, they change their angle relative to the slope, and lo and behold, they see more break. So it's, they trust it, but they've also learned, most likely subconsciously, how to fudge the system to get the read they want. So Aimpoint is really different from Plumb Bobbing because we stand in different positions as a starting point. Two, we spend so much time becoming aware of the differences between different slopes and what that feels like in our body, where we sense it, and there's five or six different things that go on for any, any given slope. And when we do it with a new golf, it's like, oh, it's really hard to feel, but it's interesting you know, a week later or even later in the session, how they can give us this nuance around, oh, I can feel this part of my foot and behind my calf, or I can feel something up and down in my body. There's all these patterns that go on. And yeah, the, and having seen what's involved, having trained it a lot, I cannot agree that they're the same thing, Ollie, sorry. <laughs> That's the short answer. <laughs> and yeah, I'm, 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 uh, there's so many areas that we no, can go no, into. Not... <laughs> but, but no, I cannot agree. I, I spoke to Mark on the podcast a few weeks ago, so I might be repeating myself to the listeners. But I'll tell you the story of um, I was on the putting green the other day and on the ninth green, which is right by us, a lady who I haven't coached Jane Point to stood there and stick two fun to stuck two fingers out. So I'm like, you know what's she doing like where did she get that who taught her that so i asked her she said i said what you know what what are you doing she said i don't know but i've just uh just trying giving it a go <laughs> trying to make it happen it's funny the first experience i had with express mark so the european conference is on i wasn't at that i'm in i'm here in melbourne but mark sent me a couple of videos going check this out and tell me what you think and I actually had a girl, Hannah, from, um, she's part of the New Zealand golf program. She was over here training. And I showed her this video. She's, she was doing the midpoint read for using the chart. And we didn't quite know what was going on. And I called Mark. He said, yeah, this is sort of how it works. Just, just try it. And it was like, man, and we just, yeah, we could feel slope one way or the other. We were kind of assigning it to two. It was a bit more than it was bigger. We just played more. But it was like, wow, there's something in this. And it was 
it was amazing. And, and interestingly enough, the first time Express was delivered to the public was after the European conference, maybe a month or two after that. Mark was in Melbourne and and usually like I was doing maybe 400, 200 to 400 aimpoint people a year. So I just ordered all my charts for the year and they're still sitting in that drawer right behind me. <laughs> and I've not used them since. And we did a couple of clinics where we would do express and then we'd do the normal one. And it was evident straight away how the mental energy required and the engagement from Express was so different. So the rest of the trip, though, was we booked in things all around and it was sold as Aimpoint. We ended up, Aimpoint being the chart, we ended up saying, listen, we've got the charts here. If you want them, we'll show you. But we're actually getting so much better results with this new method, the Express method. And we haven't looked back since. Fantastic. You, it's a, do, you, do you remember the day you introduced Aimpoint Express to me? At Albert Park. The first, the first day we, uh, we met, I was, went out to um, yeah, Melbourne probably six, seven years ago. And um, I, I was looking, I was a young golf coach at the time, and I was like looking at, right, who's, who's, who's the best coach? And I remember coming to see you. I was a little bit worried, actually. I don't know if I've said this to you. No, you but, haven't. But I, um, what I was worried about, was I looked at how much per hour you said, yeah, come over and we'll, we'll meet up. <laughs> so I was, I'm like, cool, but we didn't bring, like, bring your credit card, Ollie. No, this is the problem. Right. So did, I remember you convert it to pounds. The Australian dollar's not that strong, <laughs> but I only had dollars on me. Right. So I didn't have my card. I don't think. So I think you were $180 or something. And we ended up spending three and a half hours together. And I, when we were finishing the conversation, I'm like, he's going to turn around and like 700 bucks, please, pal. <laughs> and I didn't have it on me, but anyway, you didn't, didn't charge me a bean, but going back to, yeah, we, we spent some time on the putting green and you were like, Hey, let me show you this, this read. And I was just like, what are you doing? Like it was completely witchcraft. Do you know what I mean? It was, yeah. Mm. So Crazy. My first experience, do you know, Steve Giuliano? Uh, I have spoken to him. I've not met him, but I know he's a cool dude. So he went across to the PGA show in Orlando. He's someone I went through my traineeship with. And he's now living in Malaysia and just, just killing it. Really great on social media. Runs education for golf coaches, coaches himself. Um, high, high quality. But he's like, Stuart, I've got to show you something. So I can't really describe it. And it, it turns out it was Aimpoint. And, and he said, like, I'm going to bring out Mark and Jamie came as well. At the time, I was head of education for the PGA of Australia. That's, that's not quite the right term. I was head of golf coaching. So anything, you know, we had a PGA Learning Centre and Technology Hub. We're doing golf education programs at different parts around the world. Anything around golf coaching when the education department was doing, I was involved in what do we need to talk about? How are we going to deliver it? How are we going to examine it? So in that context, Mark and Jamie come and, and I'm still coaching. So I arranged a clinic and gave me another deal. We hosted them for the day. And firstly, I just was thinking like, what, what is Mark going to tell me about green reading? Really? Like I've been on tour. I can read greens. No, I was kind of wrong there. I, <laughs> I've learned so, so, so much. And the, the class at the time was very different to an express class. So you, you'd learn the read, but there's also this education process around green structures and low points and all these other activities that were, I don't think helped you become a better putter. They definitely, if you tried to take it all in, made it more challenging to learn the art of the green read. But for me, what I couldn't get over is how predictable break was. You know, finding that like if you're at this point, the low anchor, we and if you go five or six steps one side, we know the ball's going to break in this direction. It's like, what are you talking about? And if we're on that same part of the green, so we're going over a tier, forget that, but if we're on on a planar green or on on that same side where the low anchor is the dominant one, 
just put five holes in. These all are going to like we can predict the break straight away. It's like it just blew my mind. And you know, plotting basically the slope line by going, you know, we've got X amount of break. If we extend the length of the putt and change the angle slightly, we can find the same break just by playing you know, across the slope is going to break more, so it's a shorter distance, and getting further and further down the slope, we can actually have the same amount of break, and we're, we're plotting the, the line of slope and doing it. And it was, again, it's not useful necessarily for someone who's just trying to get a green read, but it's like, this is crazy. This, <laughs> this blew my mind. And I had one of my clients came with me who was actually a podiatrist. He fixed my back, Rowan. Smart guy, and he just lapped it up. And we went and played nine holes afterwards. And we played a game. We had different color markers, white marker, and I think it was my other one was a blue one from memory. So I'd do my normal read, put the marker down, and then I'd do the aim point read. And three times the aim point read was on the other side of the hole to what I saw. Wow. I'm like, yeah, we're talking like 10, 15 foot putts, makeable putts, subtle, like small slopes, one, two percent at most. Only ones. They're like, look at this. It's on the wrong side. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give it a go. And every time the aim point read was on the wrong side of the hole, it went in. I hold <laughs> it. I'm like, all right, there's something in this. It's quite confronting. <laughs> and for me, I like I that first read, I'd work at it and I, I couldn't quite commit, which I think I can relate to when our students talk about it. I, I, I would get success, but I just couldn't, I couldn't get it to repeat all the time. And for me, when I actually purchased a digital level and I calibrated myself properly, I was just making small errors in how I was feeling the slope. And once that was improved and I could train it, I, my putting has never been better. I love it. I love it. It's um yeah, I, I love 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 aim point. It's uh it's just like a revolution, really, isn't it? It's just and it what it gives players so much confidence to you. That's what I see it gives golfers is they know where to aim. Well they make a decision, as you said earlier. It just just make a decision. Clarity. Clarity. So how often how often do you hit a bad putt because you're either you're not certain, is it left edge, right edge, outside? Or because you've missed a few, you've trusted, you've lost trust in either your putting stroke or your decision on the read. So you're so conflicted about where you want to hit it. By the time you're over the ball, you're not really hitting it at anything. You're just hoping. But if I've got a read, I'm hitting it here. Right or wrong, I'm more likely to hit a good putt. And I can accept hitting a really good putt how I want. If it doesn't go in, well, it's like my process was good. I know if I keep doing that, I'll make my share as opposed to, you know what? I never really had a chance of making that. I never had a decision. I never was locked in. Because once you make your decision on where it's going, you can just now lock into how the ball's getting there. And for me, that means speed. I can just feel and see it and it becomes really clear. But if I haven't committed to where I'm hitting it, the line, I never really commit to speed. I'm never really... It's never clear when I'm over the ball. It's all hazy. And if it does go in, it's, it's more luck than anything else, isn't it? It's not because I've done it right. It's not because I've hit it how I wanted to. I've just kind of fudged it. Hmm. I think usually it, when it matters, it doesn't work. Yeah. I think if you've got a bad read, you've got to put a bad stroke on it to hold the putt. And, yeah. yeah. And then you do another bad read and you have to put a different bad stroke on it the next one. Yeah. And so on and so on. And good luck guessing which way. And you might have a good day, but ultimately I found when I was putting that way that my stroke would need constant calibration, hence the technical work that we we're talking about before. Trying that to made you worse. <laughs> definitely didn't help my headspace. I know that. <laughs> Interesting. Stewie, going back to what you were saying earlier about 75% of your shots were inside 50 yards. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Is that what you said earlier? From from shots 100 yards and in, um, 75% were 40 yards or less. Right. Okay. So of your overall shots, what percentage mm -hmm. are inside 
40 yards, 450 yards. All shots or all ball striking shots? Uh, including all shots, including patting and driving, yeah. So, so typically inside 40, I was doing this with someone yesterday, three and a half, it was about 12 shots, 10 to 12 shots around inside 40. That actually sounds fine. Maybe it's eight to 10 shots. Including pats. Of, of all my shots? Yeah. Yeah. Eight, let's just say between eight and 12 around. So that's compared, yeah. to, compared to 30 pats. Compared to thirty pats, I've lost. You've lost me. I think I'm probably asking. Uh, uh, so um, this is how I understand way. your question. This is how I understand your question. How many shots in total did you play inside forty? Yeah. So if well, you scored, including yeah, so let's pats. say my my average score is seventy two. Yeah. I would have thirty pats across all the distances. Got you. Inside forty, I'm playing eight to twelve shots. Okay. Got you. So that's like 42 out of 72. So over half, 60%. Sorry, say that again. <laughs> it's because I'm Irish and you're, um, you're, you're linear. No, 60% of your 72 shots are inside mm -hmm. 40 yards. You're saying putting and short game? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, and is 40, that 40? Yeah, I, yeah you, you, I understand. You're exactly correct. Yeah, four, over 40 shots just of 72. Yeah, or inside 40 yards. Okay. Yeah. So bang on, we've got what 14 T shots. So maybe eight to 10 drivers and a few hybrids. Mm -hmm. And the rest is between 40 to 100 and then 100 to 250 approach shots. How does that change? Asking you to to know this off the top of your head, but I know you're you're, you're a stat man, so you'll be close. <laughs> like, how does that change for a ten handicap or an eighty shooter and a ninety shooter? You know what we could do is, I could share my screen with you, and I can show you. Is this podcast being going up as a YouTube thing as well? Yeah. Well, why don't you give me sharing permissions, and I'll bring it up, and we'll talk about it. Let's do it. And it's a nice opportunity for, for us to talk about shots the whole, Stu. So as that's loading, talk us through why on earth you decided to invent shots the whole and what is it and how can it help golfers? All right. So can you see my screen there, Ollie? Yeah, got it. So this is our, our platform. And I say our because Paul Mesner is Can you make it bigger, Stu? I can in a sec, yeah. And Paul came wanting to pursue his dream of becoming a golf professional. He worked in IT and was in the position in his mid-30s where he could take some time off and his dream was to become a golf pro. And as a consequence, he came for a golf lesson and, and I asked him a question saying, well, you know, what, what do you need to do? to achieve this goal and to you know, tell me about your game. And, and Paul couldn't answer the question. So he started making a stats program. What he didn't know is that I had always kept data on my game. And I, one of the reasons I finished playing was because I ended up with an injury and couldn't play. I'd, I'd over-practiced and worn out some ribs. And, and when I couldn't play, one of the things that I did was practice like a chip and putt. So I'd just practice and I'd put my scores together and I worked out that you know, I, I putted better one day and I hit it closer the next day. I, I started playing with the scores saying, well, if I putted like I did yesterday, I could have scored this. Well, I chipped it like I did this day, I would have scored that. And that, that became these things. So to answer your question, the average person that shoots between 71 and 73 and is male we have 1.8 shots from inside 10 plus 3.5 from 10 to 20. So what does that make it? 5.3. So 7.1 shots inside 40. Got you. Plus the from, 30, 30 pats. So it's over half. Yeah. From 40 to 100, you can see how those numbers get much less. 0.9, 1.1, 1.8. So 
we're looking now at, what is that, two, 3.8 shots. So in this case, you can see there's basically two thirds, three quarters at the top and one, one third down the bottom of shots inside 100. Hmm. When we look at the longer approach game, this is for a par golfer, you can see the numbers go back up again, 2.4, 2.9, 2 2.9. 2 now, to answer your question, if I change that to someone that... Let's go 80, someone who shoots 80. Okay, Thank so we'll do 80 to 84. Perfect. So for context, we didn't do this in the putting, but we get lots of putts inside three feet because all the ones that miss are tap-ins and then some are closer to three feet. Hopefully. But we, we can see three to five feet. There's nearly three and a half, just under four, at five to nine feet, nearly five, nine to 15 feet, just under four again at 15 to 25 feet. So that category five to 25 feet is, is really significant. And then we get... The make percentages are interesting there, Stu, as well, where the average is zero. Not far off. Is it? From For which distance? 15, uh, what did you say? Nine, nine to 25 feet. The yeah. average from so nine. We're looking at this one here. Yeah. At nine to 15 feet for the, the low 80s golfer, the make rate, and this number isn't exclusively one putts, it's one putts minus the three putts. So it's the net, the net difference, if that makes sense. Yeah. But you're going to, on average, one putt 11% of the time if you're a low 80s golfer from nine to 15 feet. More alarmingly, from hmm. 15 to 25 feet, you're going to three putt 4% of the time. So it's going to take you more than two shots to get into the hole. So you've hit the green at 15 to 25 feet and this level of golfer is going to, on average, be over par. And if they hit it to 25 to 40 feet away, they're going to be over par nearly a quarter of the time, which is that number down there. So can we benchmark that against a pro to yeah. see how that changes with a pro? So it's the score range I'm going to now, I'm going to go to... This score range is 66 to 71. And this, this model's not just a pro, but successful on tour. So can you see those green triangles that have come up on the screen? Yeah. That basically is the skill difference between a, a par golfer, or sorry, in this case, a tour level golfer and a low 80s golfer. And if I slide on this bar at that nine to 15 feet, our world-class golfers who are successful on tour will make just under 30% of their putts from nine to 15 feet. And that's a shot difference. Yeah, it's 0.8 of a shot per occurrence. So let's, let's just say we get five of these per round if you're a, a typical 80s golfer. So they're four shots better in the course of a round than that, that one discipline of putting from nine to 15 feet. A tour player will be five shots better, just under. In one round? Yeah. God, that's alarming, isn't it? I thought that was 0.8 of a shot over a round, but because it's times 4.8, it's five times. Because it, it... Mm. So that... that... Sorry, no, I've, I've, I've got excited and exaggerated it. If a tour player putted from five feet to 25 feet for the average 80 golfer, yep. that would improve their score by just over two shots. So yeah, was, okay. I was getting very excited with my... My changes are early. And let's just say the tour player putted across the board. It's still a we'll lot though, right? Group. That three to five foot's a big one, surely. Half. So a tour player would take the average 81.5 score down to 77.7 just by putting. Four shots. Yeah. And if we what? add in... After you, I was going to say we add in inside 40 meters, so just green sides. There's no, I guess what we're talking about here, Ollie, is there's no physical limitation. That's, it's not like driving it. That's why I was going to so, say, Stu, exactly the same. Yeah. If a tour player played for 40 meters, 40 yards off the green and putted, they're going to be just over six shots 
around better for for the average 80 shooter that turns him into a mid 70s golfer which that's like a huge obviously a huge jump isn't it to go from you know a 10 handicap to a, a four handicap handicap just by sharpening your short game well well it's, it's, you it's, have it's to think if you average 75.6 with the way our handicap systems now sort of in line with the US system if you're averaging 75.6, you're probably going to be pretty close to a, a one or a two, maybe even scratch off a 75 average. Sure. You hey, take your, your better ones, which go to 73.4, and you drop the higher ones. That, that, that's, that's quite a low handicap, isn't it? Yeah, it is. With the um, uh, the World Index handicap system thingy. Yes, yes. We, we do that now as well. We're posh in, posh in the UK. We do it. Well, is- I think it's good that everyone's uniform. Now, yeah. let me bring this up for you, Ollie. I'm interested in your take. So this database has well over 25 million shots in it. And 25 gonna, million? Yeah, it's crazy. To think that it started from a discussion in a golf lesson. <laughs> so we have on the far left, we've got world-class performance, and you can see how we've got the, the putts to hole which is how many shots we'd expect the person to complete in. Yeah. Mid-70s. We have the average make rate, and then we have the dispersion or how close the ball gets to the hole. This is really interesting. Just to identify what is normal performance. So we, we touched on it for approach game. So we've got on the far left, world-class. So let's just go mm-hmm. through world-class, too, because I think people think world-class is, well, in some areas, I think they're, they think they're better. Inside 10 feet, I think they, they are better, but then outside 10 feet, they're probably not. Let's, discuss, let's go through that data there. Okay, so if you're a world-class golfer, we'll, make, we'll focus on the makeable putts first. So I'm defining makeable as inside of 15 feet. Forget the zero to three. Basically, you've got to make all of those if you're world-class. And that, that drops off a little bit as we look at the different scoring ranges. But at three to five feet, the make rate is roughly eight out of 10. It's, it's 81%. Obviously, there are other variables when we talk about this, Ollie, like the type of green and the quality of the surface the severity of the slope and where you're putting from influences things like this. But ultimately, in tournament conditions, 8 out of 10, which means in practice, you probably need 9 out of 10. Mm-hmm. At 5 to 9 feet, the mate rate is 55%. So in practice, maybe we're going for 6 out of 10. 9 to 15 feet, the mate rate, mate, make rate See, that's a different discussion, isn't it? The mate rating. Um, the mate <laughs> rate is 28%, so you know, roughly three out of 10. So if you're chipping the ball or hitting your wedge shots, and we've already discussed that nine to 15 feet is better than average, your best likely return if you're a world-class golfer is making not quite a third of those putts, maybe one out of four. And we hit of all the wedge shots you hit, probably 20 to 30% will get into that, that 9 to 15-foot category or closer. If you then become a low 80s golfer, that make rate goes down to 1 out of 10. Hmm. So it really drops off. The long-range putting, so 15 to 40 feet, in, in the middle range there, 15 to 25 feet, really good golfers make just over 10% of those putts. And they think about you hit lots of green and regs, those wedges go a bit further out. They're, they're still making birdies at that distance at a rate of about 10%. And that's part of the reason why they can accumulate four, five, six birdies around is most of the greens and reg will go outside of 15 feet. Obviously, all hit it closer. In the round, but on average, this is where the greens and reg are going. And then at 25 to 40 feet, basically they two putt. As we go out, 
each skill level. So the mid-70s golfer is going to three-putt from 25 to 40 feet. They're going to three-putt about 10% of the time. When we go to a low 80s golfer in that same putting category, 25 to 40 feet, they're going to three-putt about 20% of the time. And a third of the time, the 90s golfer is going to three-putt from that same distance. And they're three-putting because they hit the ball with their first putt on average to five feet. And at five feet, they make 60%. Whereas our, our low or mid-70s golfer, they get the ball to three feet. So they're, they're two feet closer and they also make... 70% versus 50% from, from that five foot range. So at every level, the skill levels just help you to be better and you hit the ball closer and you make more of the short putts. That's fascinating. So the, is it comes down to the touch, having the ability to stop the ball at the hole or dispersion yeah, around the hole rather than, um, yeah, that, they're three putting because the first putt doesn't get close enough, right? Yeah, and as you've alluded to, the what are the factors that might, what are the factors only that might influence that? Well, when we're talking before we started, are they hitting the ball cleanly? Like the quality of strike of a, a mid seventies golfer or tour level golfer compared to a nineties golfer, like just the ability to hit the sweet spot every time, that that has to help. The ability to have a regular flowing stroke. And think about the rhythm of a, a 90s golfer who often will use the same backswing length every time and then hit it progressively harder. And then there's a point where when you do that on a longer putt, you've got to accelerate the putter so quickly over a short amount of time that you lose your body shape and you can't strike it. Mm. Let alone the ability to have a good setup where your alignment forearm shoulders are, are consistent and typically we see as you go down the skill levels, a more and more compromised setup, which means variability in, in direction control. So we've got a strike issue, an acceleration issue, which makes distance hard. We've got probably poor putter aim full stop, let alone a mismatch in body alignment and increasingly poorer and poorer reads. Those five areas we're talking a two foot differential in average dispersion between a mid seventies golfer and a low nineties golfer. Like it's from the putter head to the beginning of the grip is two feet. In that context, it's not much, is it? But it's a world of difference. World. Yeah. I would add in concepts as potentially a six variable there that like what their concept is. I think yeah. better players pros tend not always, but can have better concepts and, you know, the, the 90s guy is trying to go straight back, straight through, and he's trying to accelerate through the ball and keep the putter low to the ground and keep it facing the ground, you know, facing the target, push it towards the target, etc. And, and the concepts lead to competency <laughs> because there's a higher level of proficiency because the concepts are more correct. The more skilled golfer is probably more able to leave the technical elements behind and, and pick up on the cues of the green or be in the right headspace to be able to let go and execute. Whereas the less skilled golfer who has poor concepts or is less, less competent is distracted. They're, they're really focusing and trying hard, but they're maybe not aware or, or tuned into the things that, that might help them to, to get the ball closer. That, that nuance of looks like it's uphill, but there's actually a little bit of a, it gets away over that little crest. And so they can actually do maybe their best part of the day, but miss the cues and end up a long way away. And it's like, oh, it's just another bad putt. They can't differential, differentiate the difference between a good one and a bad one because they, they missed those cues. Absolutely. Stewie, um, we, we could talk for, talk for days. Um, I know that, but I'm very conscious of your time. I know you're, you're on the farm today. You, you've, you've got to do some farming soon, haven't you? Farmer Stew. Well, I'm going to do some golf Stewie. lessons. Are you going to do and golf it's, lessons? It's, uh, it's school holidays today. So I've got three boys, um, eight, 10, eight, and six, just turned six. So there'll be some cricket involved. We'll, 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 no doubt we'll play the Ashes today. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. The, uh, you know, what's like, do, uh, do, do England normally win the Ashes or is it? Uh, Depends which era we're playing in. We won 2005, didn't we? Yeah, you've won most of the home series 
since uh, Warren and McGrath have retired, you guys have won. I think the last one we drew, so we were the holders, current holder holders of the Ashes. I think it was two two the last one. It's quite quite fun. You guys don't do so well when you come over here. I think touring Australia, I think, is pretty tough for cricket teams. It's a hot, long tour, but but it's great. Like our boys, like we obviously like Australia to win, but I just love watching good, you know, the best. I love the contest and. Uh, India is out touring at the moment and just watching like, Coley only played the first tets, but you're know, watching just watching good performance and then they, they're like that in golf too. They have their favorite golfers, but just they like watching the best do their thing. Don't we all? Yeah, absolutely. I love watching the 20, the 2020. Do you like that? Uh, like the ashes a bit long for my liking, but those like quick, bashes that you can watch sit there for two hours and watch a whole game i, I like that but I, I i like it but i don't i don't get invested like i, I watch a game and i'm not like I, I support our local team and we, we take the boys and i love that the boys like it but i, I like the i like test cricket i like i just like the strategy involved and it's i think it's a much better test but for sure the, the, the t20 stuff spectacular to watch I love watching the big smashes, but yeah, I thought you would like the 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 data, as you call it, the <laughs> data. the the, the data. Data, data, mate. Yeah. data, mate. Anyway, Stuart, go on. I was just going to say I was on a podcast with Brady Waters, the host, a few weeks ago, and similar. He's a he was number one amateur in the world for a while, and he's trying to make his way. And he started this podcast around golf, but also just around mental health and and those things which is brilliant but he likes the stats in golf but he's a massive fantasy sport guy likes like and the, the guys that he's with they aren't main players it's the numbers and that's how he, he stacks his teams F- what fancy football yeah football soccer just you you, you subscribe golf you you go um, in these different leagues with your your fictitious team and you play against other ones and based on the results there's winners it's he, he loves he loves that lots of guys do girls loves, do absolutely <laughs> stewie well um that was a, a fun conversation i knew it would be um we, we've probably not gone through what i was going to ask but um that that's fun in many ways because it, we just naturally just were chatting so yeah thank you so much for your time really appreciate it <laughs>